Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Barbara Bradley Haggerty joins me to talk about her new book on the hour today, Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. She says, when I was in my early 50s, I became quite convinced I was having a midlife crisis. I was an on-air correspondent for National Public Radio with a partly paralyzed vocal cord that left me without voice for days or weeks at a time. My stepdaughter was in college. My marriage was stable, but our lives were weighed down with the responsibilities of college tuition and a mortgage, frail parents, high-stress jobs. We were too tired to have fun. Then my father died. My mother, who was my best friend, suffered a stroke. I saw with sudden clarity that my generation was the next to go. I had a choice. I could stumble along at the edge of a midlife crisis, or I could reimagine my life. The former, says Barbara Bradley Haggerty, was unappealing. The latter fell right into my skill set. My job as a journalist was to ask questions and find answers. The question here was, how do you thrive at midlife? The book is Life Reimagined. Barbara Bradley Haggerty uh, joins me. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Tom. And uh, people who uh, listen to NPR uh, know your backstory. But just to just tell people, uh, Barbara Bradley Haggerty spent nearly 20 years as a correspondent for NPR covering law and religion. And she's author previously of the New York Times bestselling Fingerprints of God, recipient of the Templeton Cambridge Journalism Fellowship in Science and Religion and Knight Fellowship at the Yale Law School. And before joining NPR, she was a reporter at Christian Science uh, Monitor. Um, so, I feel old. <laughs> well, During my biography, I feel old. <laughs> well, I guess you've arrived at midlife, That's what, as I have as well. So I, I, I perked up when I was reading the book. Um, I wonder if, uh, if I could have you read, uh, I, I prepped you for a different uh, page, sure. but uh, page 16, oh, page the first 16, uh, okay. full uh, paragraph there, and then down to the bottom of the page. To set this up, um, so I was reading the book here, reading your, your background, you you apparently were blessed with very, very wonderful parents. Yes. And you'd yes, I was. reached a stage of life at, at this point in your, your uh, early 50s. Your, your, your father dies. Your, your mother suffers a stroke, and that's where we mm-hmm. begin here. Right. Right. Uh, you want me to start with uh, Over the Long Memorial yeah, Day yes. weekend, that one? Yes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Over the Long Memorial Day weekend, I sat by my mother's bedside in the hospital's intensive care unit as mom floated just at the surface of consciousness, occasionally popping up long enough to look at me mutely, lost in confusion. Were there words in there trying to elbow their way out through the maze of her broken brain, or was her brain an empty room, all thought, all memory, all personality swept clean? This mattered to me. For my mother's insight, my mother's singular gift is insight. Her ability to listen carefully to my tales and dilemmas, take a reading from her impeccable moral compass, and suggest a way forward. At her core, mom's identity is her thinking. I feared that she had lost her identity and that I had lost my mom. A few days later, I stood at our kitchen sink cleaning lettuce in the spinner. Outside the window, a neighbor trotted up the street with her dog. Another one set the sprinkler just right. It was a soft evening in my favorite time of year, when all of life bursts with the vivid beauty of the adolescent spring, when I could remember, if only for a few seconds, the exhilaration of youth. I felt nothing. No surge of joy at being alive, no frisson of gratitude for witnessing another annual birth. I glanced at my husband, who was slicing tomatoes. I think I'm having a midlife crisis, I announced. Devin put down the tomato. Don't do that, he said. Please don't have a midlife crisis. <laughs> so, uh, read that, I, I you know, just like your husband. Just don't do it, right? Don't, don't go don't there. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah. 
It was like, we have enough problems. You don't need to have a midlife crisis. <laughs> so, you know, and actually, Tom, what I did is I took his advice, and, and the next day I got up really early in the morning, and I began to, to Google midlife crisis because I wanted to figure out, was I having a midlife crisis? And if so, you know, like, how do I get out of it? How do you thrive at midlife? It just, you know, I kind of wanted to see how to navigate the next chapter of my life because I really felt that I was in the next chapter of my life. So that was really kind of the beginning of the book, the beginning of the research for the book. I guess that's what a reporter does, right? To yes. Start doing some yes, research. Yes, we don't we don't um, think about our feelings too much. We, we go out there and we interview people about their feelings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but this is, I, I guess, your story is, is not atypical. You, you've got uh, problems of, of midlife. You got, uh, I guess, you're kind of stuck in the middle. You got you, your stepdaughter uh, has tuition. Right. Your parents are frail, and, and your father right. dies, and your mother starts having problems, and you start getting weighed down with these problems. And that's what could trigger, I guess, for for some people this this crisis in midlife. Right, right. And you know what's what's interesting is um, if I can just make a distinction because we have this idea mainly from movies like um, American Beauty or books like Passages by Gail Sheehy, we have this sense that everyone is supposed to have a midlife crisis. And by that, I mean, and by that, what researchers mean is this existential angst that, you know, you're going to die before you realize your dreams and that, therefore, you have to go out and buy a, a red sports car and dump your spouse, right? That's kind of the, the this cultural phenomenon that we think is going on. But in fact, when researchers looked at it, and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people, what they found is that only about 10% of people actually have this existential midlife crisis. Most people do have a dip in happiness in their 40s and early 50s, but they pull out of it. Uh, And so most people don't have this existential crisis that everyone talks about. And as you say, as you just said right there, it's become popularized, right? Right. We we have this conception that everybody goes through a crisis. Right, right. And, you know, there's a reason we all feel that way, and it's because there is something genuine happening in your 40s and 50s. So um, economists call it the U-curve of happiness. So economists have surveyed people in 75 different countries, and they talk to them. They ask them basically this question, are you happy now or are you stressed now? And they ask people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And what they find is that people in their 20s and 30s are, are really very happy. And then they begin to kind of diminish in happiness. Um, I think with the stress levels going up, with all the burdens that they have, they begin to diminish and hit a, a low point in their 40s and early 50s. <clears throat> in the U.S., the, the low point of your happiness curve is at 45. It's 40 for women and 50 for men. And then what happens is, People, what they believe happens is people begin to reconcile their, some of their hopes and dreams with what, how their life is really turning out, and they begin to become happier in their 50s and 60s and 70s. So ironically, someone you know, in, in his 70s who might be on a walker, although a lot of people aren't, at the, we're such a healthy generation, but um, that person might be happier than someone at the peak of his career, his or her career at 45. It's a, ironic, but what happens is we do kind of pull out of this U-curve of happiness and we swoop up the other side. Yeah, that's very hopeful. And uh, your question, your specific question, I guess, was uh, how do we thrive at uh, midlife? And so there's some there's some concrete science and, and, and yes. uh, things that you learned. I wonder if we could uh, just back up just very briefly sure. uh, and, and have you read the, the, that passage at the bottom of page 23 and over to sure. page 24. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> so it, if I might just explain what I did, um, 
we sent out, NPR sent out um, a call out on its Facebook page saying, how is midlife treating you? And within about two or three hours, I got 700 <laughs> email responses. Wow. And they were just gorgeous. They were these masterpieces. And so um, I, I, what I read, I'm, I kind of used some of these emails throughout the book. And these, this email uh, that I'm about to read really captures this idea of the existential midlife crisis better than any other one. So let me just go ahead and read it. Quote, I used to be pretty and glamorous. 51-year-old Alessandra Lanti wrote, Men flirted with me at the grocery store. Now my kneecaps are sagging. I'm not sure why that bothers me so much, but it does. I have become invisible to men, and along with my shifting appearance, I've had to shift my self-image, too. I went back to school, got a degree, got married, got stepchildren, got old. I think about what I did, what I didn't do, what I wanted to do, and what is left to be done. I didn't become a famous writer or rich or wise or a perfect stepmom. I didn't save the world from suffering or travel to the Amazon. I didn't even master the lotus position. Oh, yes, and I'm afraid to die. And as my parents become more feeble and ready to depart, I know that I am next, and I am scared. I'm acutely aware of the inexorable passage of time, and I feel a new sense of urgency in my days. I mourn the beauty, vigor, and power of youth, and I do not think I can move on until I have fully grieved. Then, perhaps, I will be proud that I finally grew up, but not yet, not until I let go of what I have lost. To the, this, to my mind, qualifies as a genuine midlife crisis, a life ruptured by awareness of aging and death, a flailing attempt to embrace her youth in a bear hug as it dissolves into mist. A few other writers described Hollywood-style crises. One woman, for example, left her husband in Nashville, traveled the country on a BMW motorcycle, and now lives with her girlfriend in San Francisco. Another, Linda Silverstein, quit her job, but not her husband, after reading Eat, Pray, Love. Quote, I definitely feel like I am, was, in a midlife crisis, she wrote, asking all the same questions I did at 18. Who am I? Where am I going? Why am I on this earth? And, you know, what I continue to say, I don't know if you want me to keep reading, but what I continue to say is that, like, for every reader who describes this kind of anguish and dread, there are ten others who said they would never trade their kind of physical and emotional trials for this easy ascent of youth. And, you know, I talk to people all the time, would you want to be 25 again? And, and so, you know, even as people are, and they say no, they say no. And so even as people are kind of wandering through this difficult wilderness at times of, um, you know, you're not feeling as healthy as you used to be. You might have minor health scares. You may lose a spouse or a parent or whatever. They still really, really love the wisdom and the perspective that they've gained by the time they reach their late 40s and early 50s. Yeah, I've, I've always said I, I, each of my decades so far has gotten better uh, yeah. than it was. And I don't want to go back. So, yeah. That's, right. That's what my mother says, and she's 94. <laughs> oh, good. That's hopeful. Yeah. I'll <laughs> Plan of that when I'm 94, hopefully. Um, but, but as you say, as, as you describe your feelings, you're you know flirting with a midlife crisis until your husband tells you not to have it. Um, uh, that as your parents go, your your dad dies, your your mother has a stroke. You rec recognize that your generation 
it's the next to go. No, you know that right. at that point you would tend to bump up against your own mortality. Uh, what do most people, as you if you study this, do people yeah. tend to think that way, or do just try to get on with life? You know, I think I mean people do have these thoughts. Um, I should I should say, Tom, that I in in some ways I think that midlife crisis is kind of a a privilege. Um, a lot of people can't really afford to even think about having a midlife crisis. They're working two jobs. They're trying to make ends meet. You know, they've got they've got kids, and they're just their lives are so busy that they don't have the time or the luxury to go. Oh, I'm going to have I'm going to have existential angst now. You know, <laughs> a lot of people don't have that luxury. But you know, for those of us who who do who kind of do, and and I'm talking about kind of middle class and up. I think people do think these thoughts a lot, but they don't go down into this deep, into this deep um, kind of depression about it. What they do is they say, I'm going to, well, basically what people do when they're thriving at midlife is they say, I'm going to kind of rethink what I consider to be success. So, for example, one reason people start to get a little bit discontented with their lives in their late 30s and early 40s is because, I, you know, I thought I'd be CEO. I, I thought I would win a Pulitzer. I thought I would do X, Y, and Z, you know, be a pitcher for the Nats. And then when you realize that those things aren't going to happen, you begin to reconcile to that and you go, and it's not like you just accept life as a, you know, <laughs> as blah and a tragedy, but you begin to say, you know what, even though I'm not CEO or even though I didn't win the Pulitzer, I have a really, I have people around me that I really love. I have a wonderful family. My kids aren't perfect, but they're pretty darn great. Yeah, I'm taking care of my parents, but boy, have they given back to me. And you begin to almost um, revise what you consider to be to be really success, successful, a successful life. And what scientists have found is that people begin to focus on two things as they go through their 50s. One of them is people, their families, their friends that are important to them. The other thing are causes, or your church, or a political cause, or something that is important to you outside of yourself. So what begins to happen is you don't care as much about moving up the ladder, or getting another more expensive car, or getting a larger house. You begin to invest outward into people and causes, and that's what begins to make people really, really happy. Let's take a break. We're talking with uh, Barbara Bradley Haggerty. A former NPR uh, reporter, and her uh, new book is Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. We'll jump into some of the science. Uh, I want to talk about uh, brain science as it relates to uh, midlife, and we'll hear a, a little snippet from a, a piece that Barbara Bradley Haberty uh, did recently for uh, NPR. Talk about that. Uh, talk about many of the aspects uh, here. Life Reimagined is the book. More following the, bo- the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. If you're asking yourself why your customer isn't buying your product or service, then maybe you don't know your customer. Excellent companies have regular dialogues with their customer. Customer relationships and service should be a part of every employee's responsibility. For example, a hospital system recently trained its housekeeping staff, the people who clean the patient's rooms, on how to better listen to patients because they're there with the patient. Your value is defined by your customers, not your marketing people or strategic planners. Customers tell us why they buy, and we just have to listen. Create excellence in your company by really listening to your customers and knowing how to bring value to them. 
The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community of everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at www.utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Barbara Bradley Haggerty, New York Times bestselling author previously of Fingerprints of God. The new book is Life Reimagined, the Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. You're welcome to join the conversation. I would love to hear your midlife story. 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So, Barbara Bradley Haggerty, you you talk to scientists, uh, you you do research here, but uh, your personal story is very interesting here as well. Um, so, you didn't just sit back here and and do things by computer. You rented an RV, drove the Blue Ridge Parkway with your husband and and your dog. For, for one I thing. did. I did. Uh, yes. Well, I kind of looked at um, it's a big subject. How do you, how you know how do you make your midlife marriage thrive? How does it? Uh, because right now, actually, Tom, we're in this really, really bad period for midlife marriages. There's actually a word for it, a phrase for it. It's called the Gray Divorce Revolution. So baby boomers are divorcing at twice the rate that their parents divorced. Uh, and so the question I had was, I mean, just look at the gores, right? <laughs> you think they're they're doing great, and then suddenly they're divorced. Um, and so the question I had was, how do you th- thrive um, during those, you know, after 10, 15, 20 years? Scientists actually haven't done a lot of work on that, um, but some have looked at how um, they've kind of followed couples over, say, a 20-year period to see who su- survives, who, who's divorced at the end, who's happy at the end, that kind of thing. And they've come up with a few ideas, and one of them was novelty. Okay, so that that uh, novelty is really, really good. The brain loves novelty, and couples that do really well get out of their comfort zone. So they find that, you know, if you don't just, don't just go to the movies, but actually go dancing or go hiking or go on a trip, or what my husband and I... <laughs> <laughs> what my husband and I did is we took an um, RV trip down the Blue Ridge Parkway. And the reason I laugh is like on our first date, I was married late. I was married when I was 43 and Devin was, was 40. And our, on our first date, Devin said, you know, what I've always wanted to do was travel the country in an RV. And I didn't say to him because it was our first date and because I thought he was pretty cute. I didn't say that is the most boring and pointless thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> but when I heard about the novelty research, we decided, I said, okay, let's go rent an RV. And so with two other friends, we rented this RV and drove down the Blue Ridge Parkway. And what, you know what? It was like 
I can't say it was a it was a vacation from heck. We'll put it that way because we're on public radio. I mean, it was the rainiest um, June in like basically in history in the in the southeastern United States. We couldn't figure out how to dump the gray water or the white or the black water. You know, we got a, we uh, the shoe brakes went out. We nearly kind of lost our brakes. I mean, it was one thing after another. And Tom, it was the best vacation we ever had. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was so much fun is that we were completely out of our comfort zone. It was new. Every day was an adventure. What's going to go wrong today? And we watched, you know, I watched how my husband handled things, and it made me proud of him, you know? I mean, I just grained in kind of admiration of him. So so I'm not recommending that everyone rent an RV, but I am recommending that people try to put a little bit of novelty in their marriage because it really, really helps. Yeah, that resonates. I, I think about some family vacations that were, in some ways, akin to National Lampoon's vacation, and uh, and uh, but but you look back and it was it was the time of our lives. It was great. Right, exactly, exactly. I know we're going to do it again, and we're going to do it again with these same two friends. So, um, you know, it's it's just we've created a little bit of a memory, and we're going to keep going back to it. Now, you went to eHarmony as well to to look yes, at this. Yes, yes, I did. Um, I figured that eHarmony had been around long enough since two thousand to figure out at least how some, you know, they had about 14 years under their belt, and they could see what, what really worked and, and what didn't work. And what they, what they really found is that there are a couple things that really are, are qualities that are pretty important to long-term marriage, and one of them is adaptability. It was really kind of interesting. I mean, it seems like such a boring quality, but they said, you know, think about it. Life changes over the course of, of a marriage. I mean, your parents get sick, you're raising kids, you know, you're having one person loses a job. If you are both on the same team, and this goes to other research as well, but if you're adapting to life together as a team, you will make it. Um, the, other, the other thing that research has shown, both by eHarmony and at the University of um, UCLA, what they found is that when you think as a team, then the marriage goes much better. So what the researchers did is they followed people every year, every five years, over 20 years. And what they found is that the couples that used plural pronouns, so we and us as opposed to I and me, were much happier and much more likely to be married at the end of 20 years. And obviously this wasn't a matter of semantics, right? It was a mindset. If you face life as a team, you're going to have a much more satisfying marriage. The other person will be your shelter in a storm, which actually goes to other research as well. If your spouse is a shelter in the storm, the marriage will be much happier and more secure. Another thing that jumped out to, to me with the book in, the, in this section is uh, paying attention to your marriage. Don't neglect your marriage. I guess that's a temptation over, over a long period of time. To You, you just got to get on to other things. You neglect the marriage. Absolutely, absolutely. It's so easy to go on autopilot, whatever it is, you know, whether it's your career or your marriage or whatever. What I found is that uh, the phrase I came up with was, is autopilot is death. Really, like if you do not engage in your marriage, then you are much, much more likely to be unhappy. Because middle life, like marriages that end within seven years, end with a lot of drama and pots and pans flying and things like that. Marriages that end later, like at 14 years, they end in kind of sullen silence. It's when you have disinvested, excuse me, in your spouse, when you no longer... Um, maybe respect them, or you no longer look to them as a self of, as a source of help or comfort for you, and those marriages just end quietly because you've 
they've disinvested from each other. So it is so important to pay attention to your spouse, to notice, and I'm guilty of not doing this, you know, I have to keep remembering to do this, to just notice when when he or she, you know, comes home with a victory and to celebrate that, or notice when things are going badly and to be a comfort there, to just invest. I want to talk about uh, brain science. You, uh, you you had your brain scanned for one thing, and you <laughs> yes, did a did. did a report on this uh, just last month for NPR. Let's hear a portion of this. This is uh, you went to University of Maryland, I believe. Uh, there's a photo here on NPR.org of of you with this <laughs> this the thing on your head with a bunch of wires yeah. coming out. Let, let's right. hear just a portion of this. Now, researchers typically talk about two aspects of intelligence. One is crystallized intelligence, our accumulated skills, experience, and knowledge that we pick up in life. This is Jewelry. Think about those contestants who rattle off obscure facts. The language group named for these nomadic tribesmen of North Africa is also called Tamazight. Roger. What is Berber? Berber is right. I knew that. This crystallized intelligence can keep rising through your 60s and 70s. And then there is fluid intelligence, our ability to solve novel problems without using our experience or knowledge. Think Sherlock Holmes. There's a knife on the breadboard with butter on the right side of the blade. Because he used it with his left, it's highly unlikely that a left-handed man would shoot himself in the right side of his head. Conclusion, someone broke in here and murdered him. Fluid intelligence is thought to be limited by your genes and generally begins to decrease after your 20s. Susan Yaki, a cognitive neuroscientist and my guide through this brain training experiment, says scientists have long thought that you cannot increase fluid intelligence. But Yaki and Martin Bushkull, her colleague and husband, wondered about that. They decided to focus on working memory, that is, your ability to hold information in your head as you manipulate, juggle, and update it. If we can strengthen working memory skills, we might see benefits on all other tasks that rely on the functioning of the working memory system, such as fluid intelligence or reading comprehension or others. It worked. They found that when people practiced on a computerized game that built up working memory, they improved their scores on fluid intelligence tests. When they published their findings in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, they set off a firestorm. Who cares if you get better at a video game task? Zach Hambrick, a cognitive psychologist at Michigan State University, says scientists are divided as to whether brain training works. He's tried to replicate their findings and failed. And even if Yaki's and Bushkill's participants did perform better on tests, he says... What we want to see is that people are improving in the workplace, in the classroom. And this is the evidence that's really lacking... That's from a report uh, filed by Barbara Bradley Haggerty, uh, heard on All Things Considered in in March. Sounds like there's some debate there as to whether this works. There is a debate about uh, whether you can increase fluid intelligence. Um, I have to say that um, a lot of the... uh, a lot of the momentum is going toward this idea that you can increase fluid intelligence, that you can increase, you know, this part of your IQ. Um, and, and, and in fact, if I can just, just tell you, that's precisely what I did. Um, I did this test. Um, uh, if you don't mind me just walking you through it, oh, um, I went great. and I took all of these cognitive fluid intelligence tests one day um, in 2013, and then I practiced on that computerized game for a for a month, and then I came back and I took tests again. And I have to tell you that the tests, I hate standardized tests. I'm really bad at them. And so this was like torture. I mean, this was really a public, <laughs> public service because I did not like doing this. 
Um, and the tests were really, really hard. But after practicing on this working memory game, what I found when I came back was that it was as if time slowed down. I'm not kidding. It was as if I had more time to do each question. And, and I actually improved my fluid, the, the scores on my fluid intelligence um, test, the, mo- the main one. I inc- increased my scores by 75%, which is amazing. Now, now, what you have to say is there are a couple of caveats here. You know, that's a, a it's a study of one. Um, B, I might have had a really good day, bad day the first day and a good day a month later. Um, but also, you know, you have to kind of say, you have to keep going on this. You have to keep engaging your mind or else you're going to lose all of the gains that you made. And here, Tom, I think is a really good news because, you know, even skeptics say this. We actually can make ourselves smarter in midlife and beyond. And the reason we can make ourselves smarter is because we have this crystallized intelligence, which keeps growing and growing right through, right into our 70s. And so, you know, the jam, ne, Jeopardy champs, you know, um, stuff like expertise and vocabulary and wisdom and the ability to navigate office politics, all of that gets better and better as we get older. And so what happens in midlife is that our fluid intelligence, this kind of the Sherlock Holmes type of intelligence, has not decreased very much, but our crystallized intelligence has increased a lot. So we're actually operating at our peak in our early 50s. The 50s brain is a thing of wonder. That, that's very reassuring. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, <laughs> it was for me, too. <laughs> was, uh, yeah. Um, what do we talk a little bit about dementia? I, I and I, I don't know if I'm typical, but sometimes when I can't pull up a name or you know right. it happens a little more frequently. I'm now in my fifties. I, I I go there sometimes. I, I think yeah. you know is this yeah. the beginning of dementia and 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 you worry about it. Right, you do worry about it. I worry about it when I, uh, you know, the other day I was walking around um, madly looking for my cell phone when I realized I was talking on it, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, that kind of thing kind of makes you rock back on your heels and go, ooh, boy, that's a little worrisome. Well, I mean, what obviously dementia, some people do get early onset Alzheimer's and, and they're and I wouldn't be able to diagnose someone who, you know, is having that or is just having the normal kind of memory burps that we have as we get older, as our processing speed slows down, as as some of the connections weaken. So the, all of that is very, very normal. I would be very surprised if you actually were getting dementia now. Um, there are things, though, that we can do that are just quite, quite remarkable. I mean, to stave off even the symptoms of the Alzheimer's, even if you have it. Um, so, for example, what researchers say is you should really, really try to engage your game, your your mind in something that's novel and challenging. So, if you do, if you're really good at the New York Times crossword puzzle, that's not going to help you to do more of them every day. Why don't you learn Spanish, or why don't you pick up the flute, or better yet, why don't you start um, cycling or running because exercise is really good for your brain. So there are things, concrete things that we really can do in midlife that have been proven to really, really help our cognitive abilities and preserve our memory right, right into old age. You also studied uh, neuroplasticity, I think, and it even applied it, I think, to to, to some pain that you're experiencing. Neuroplasticity is fascinating yeah. science. Yes, We've... I did. I um, 
So what happened with uh, the reason I kind of got into this is that, as you as you mentioned at the top of the hour, I began getting chronic. Uh, I had a partially paralyzed vocal cord, and, and I started getting chronic pain in my vocal cord. And um, this was unlike anything I'd experienced before. I've always been very, very healthy. And I just didn't know what to do about it. It was It was almost unbearable. And anyone who's had chronic pain, will know exactly what I'm talking about. It just it becomes the center of your life in many ways. Um, but when I was out doing my research, um, I, I decided to go to the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And I, um, I uh, went to what they call a kind of a laughing clinic. And what happens is, you know, for an hour, these patients, and many of them in wheelchairs or on IVs or whatever, they sit around, and this woman named Kathleen Parker, she, uh, excuse me, not Pat, Kathleen Parker, I'm blanking on her last name, um, Kathleen will um, get them to start laughing. And initially, they're kind of tentative about it, and soon it is raucous laughter for about an hour. And these people, it's like watching the dead rise. I'm not kidding. These people look so lively and happy, and I interviewed a bunch of them afterwards. And what happened is when they began laughing, they forgot about their pain. And when I talked to them after, after the class, they said they were pain-free. Now, that's not going to continue. But what I, you know, in a couple of hours, they'll still have pain. But what I thought in that moment, Tom, was maybe I can do something, maybe not laughter, but maybe I can think away or think down my pain levels. And that's precisely what I did through the principles of neuroplasticity, which I can go into. Um, but I, I, you know, would do a little bit of meditation. I would do distraction. And I found that my pain levels plummeted over the course of a few months where I was taking, you know, like 24 pills a day. And they weren't pain pills per se, but they were to relax my vocal cord. I got down to three. And, wow. I mean, it was it was amazing. And I didn't do anything but think differently about my pain and use some of the research that I found about meditation and placebo research and neuroplasticity to change the way I thought about the pain. And essentially what I did is I, I stripped the emotional element from the pain. So pain has two components. One is the acute pain that you have when you put your hand on the stove, but the other is the emotional component. So if you know you're about to get a migraine headache, you can feel one coming on. It's not just the headache that hurts. It's the fear of, oh, my gosh, oh, this is going to be horrible. I'm going to lose a whole day. I'm going to be in pain for a day. It's that emotional component that exacerbates the pain. And what I did is I stripped away the emotional component and reduced my pain. That's, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, if you, <laughs> could you give us the, you know, the brief crash course in neuroplasticity? What, well, uh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. So this really came from an interview I'd done a few years earlier with a guy from a, a neuro, um, neuroscientist named Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA. And he studied um, OCD patients. And this was before we knew much about neuroplasticity, that basically the brain can change um, throughout your lifetime. And what he, what he realized is that people with OCD have what he calls a worry circuit. And it basically where most of us might think, oh, did I lock the door? Yeah, I locked the door. And then kind of go on to think about other things. People with OCD think, uh, did I lock the door? No, I don't think I did. Did I? Didn't I? Did I? And they get really, really worried about it. And they go into this kind of circuit, the spiral. Um, and they can't get out of the loop. 
And so they spend the time worrying about it until they go back and make sure that the door is locked. And that gives them temporary relief, but soon they're back in that worry circuit. So what he did, what Jeffrey Schwartz did, is he took fMRI or PET scans of patients where you can see the blood flow of patients with OCD, actually them, and then an ordinary person who didn't have OCD. And he said, look, I want you to look at how your brain reacts. Look at that worry circuit there. Um, See how the blood flow is kind of going from that place to that place and back to that place and that place. He said, next time you feel you need to wash your hands or lock the door, what I want you to realize to say to yourself is, this is actually not based in reality. I don't need to wash my hands. This is a brain wiring problem. It's not me. It's my OCD. And little by little, over about, I believe it was about eight weeks, what happened is that worry circuit just unlocked. And people, they basically lost the symptoms of OCD. They got over the symptoms of OCD. Where medicine had not worked with them, this was working. And so what I did is I realized um, I had gone to a pain, uh, kind of a boot camp on vocal cord pain in, at the University of Wisconsin, and they told me that you know after doing a few months of doing vocal cord exercises, actually my vocal cord was no longer paralyzed, partially paralyzed. They said, but you've got this problem, and that is your brain is telling it you it's paralyzed, and it's it's creating pain for you. So your ba- brain is making up the pain essentially. And so what I realized is I was in a parallel with these OCD patients. And so I decided to do a couple things. I decided that when I felt pain, what I would say is, this is not based in reality. My, my vocal cord has healed. This is a brain wiring problem. And then I would do some vocal cord exercises, and then I would distract myself because studies have shown that distraction really, really reduces, um, reduces pain in the moment. And I found by doing that, over the course of a few weeks, I saw my pain levels just plummet. It was incredible. And I literally changed my brain. This is what the OCD patients did. They changed their brain through their thinking which is unbelievable. And that was, uh, Jeff Schwartz's work was really the beginning of proving neuroplasticity, that we change our brains. Isn't that cool? That is, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's amazing. We've, we've done a, a program or two on, on neuroplasticity. It's just a fascinating, fascinating science. It really science. is. It's uh, so helpful, too. It is. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back more with Barbara Bradley Haggerty, a uh, longtime uh, NPR correspondent, and uh, New York Times bestselling author of Fingerprints of God. The new book is Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. You're welcome to join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. When we come back, I want to talk about resilience. Of course, we, we need resilience in every stage of life, midlife very much so. And uh, get Barbara Bradley Haggerty to tell us about how she took up a new sport, cycling, which is wonderful. Even competed in the Senior Olympics. But so at a certain point, she broke her collarbone, so then had to apply these principles of resilience uh, personally. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the George S. Eccles Eye Center, located at 2825 North, 200 East in North Logan, Cache Valley's year-round ice arena, offering date-night skating every Thursday evening from 6.15 to 8.30. Information available at 435-787-2288 or ecclesice.com. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Her new book is Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. Uh, She set out to study midlife. She found there's no such thing as an inevitable midlife crisis. Her question was, how do you thrive at midlife? And we're talking about uh, some of the science, also the art and opportunity of uh, midlife. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Tell us your story or upraccess at gmail.com. So Barbara Bradley Haggerty, uh, one of the things you did, you... You got into cycling. Um, in fact, you competed at the Senior Olympics. But I wonder if you could tell me the story. Um, you uh, you were out on a ride, I think Bethesda, Maryland, and uh, hit something. Off you go sailing uh, through the through the air, and you broke your collarbone. Yes, this is just a few days after I decided to try to qualify for the Senior Games. Um, and so I had bought a new bike, and uh, I guess it was a little bit too light for me or something. I didn't, wasn't good at controlling it, and I hit something and, you know, did the rookie mistake of putting my arms out to ca- uh, break my fall and broke my collarbone. Um, and, uh, you know, it was ironic because just a few days before, I had actually been in Philadelphia with about 150 sergeants in the Army who were being trained on resilience training, how to become more resilient. Um, and and so I thought, oh, no, now I have to actually be resilient, you know. <laughs> I have to kind of figure out what to do right. because... Because at this point, I was coming up against my book deadline, and when you, anyone who's broken a collarbone knows that it's an inconvenient, it's not a terrible break, but it's an inconvenient one, because, you know, you can't, you can't type, you can't drive, so I had to cancel three trips, three reporting trips. You can't even, you know, wash your hair, you can't blow dry it. I looked like Felix the Cat after my husband got done with me <laughs> and the blow dryer. And so what I did is um, I, I started, I actually called up Karen Rivich, who was training people on resilience. And I said, you know, how, okay, here I am. Here's the situation. Um, I need to be resilient. And she gave me a couple of, of keys, and I'll just mention two of them, um, that, that really, really helped me. One was this idea of rejecting catastrophic thinking. So, you know, I get my collarbone broken, and, I, and I'm thinking, oh, no, I can't. I can't do my reporting trips. I'm going to miss my book deadline. Um, I'm, going to lo- I'm going to lose my book contract. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to be homeless and impoverished, right? Like, <laughs> that was my catastrophic thinking. And instead she said, no, you know what? What, what can you control right now? Yeah, it's, you've got a little bit of a difficulty, but what can you control and how can you, how can you accomplish what you need to accomplish? And so veering away from catastrophic thinking was important. The other thinking she said, the other thing she said was OPM, Other People Matter. It turns out that people who rely, people who are having trouble with something and rely on other people are much more likely to recover quickly and more happily than people who try to gut it out on their own, alone. We're also independent, you know, but really it is important to rely on other people when you're going through a difficult time, no matter, no matter what it is. And so those were two tips that I got, and they really helped me. I wonder if you tell me the, the story of Bob Stifel, is it? Um, yes. Th- th- this, yes. This really struck me uh, in the book. 49 years old, and, the, and he, he uh, felt weak, had a sore throat, pain in his left leg, ends up in the hospital. Right, right. And um, he, uh, it turns out, you know, he keeps slipping in and out of consciousness, and he keeps coding, you know. They, he keeps 
basically dying, and they keep res- um, resuscitating him. And it turned out his wife noticed that his one of his legs was really swollen, and uh, it turned out that he had necrotizing fasciitis. Uh, and they essentially they rushed him to the operating room, and they they amputated his leg way above the knee, which is a really hard. I mean. Below the knee is one thing. Above the knee is really, both are terrible, but this was difficult. What Bob had was something that resilience researchers say is really, really helpful, um, and that is he had natural optimism and natural gratitude. And um, he, he just, even though he lost his leg, he found that um, he was he just was very optimistic. He'd, he'd talked, he spent a lot of time in the hospital. He got to know everyone there, all the attendants and everything else. He created a whole new network of friends. All his friends came to um, see him, so there we are with Other People Matter again. Um, but, you know, I remember at one point when I was interviewing him, it was a couple of years later, and and we were sitting in his shop, um, his wife's store, actually, and one thing that this trauma had done was it made them realize that life was short and she had always wanted to open up kind of an artisan store and so when he was well enough she quit her job and she opened this artisan store which he contributed to a lot and did the books and all of that and i remember interviewing him sitting in in the shop and he said you know what um the, here's the thing i haven't got this and he points to his leg but i've got all of this and he points to his wife and the store, and he was including his kids and his church. And so he really was a a glass-half-full kind of guy. What I should say is he's not unique in this. Um, it turns out studies show that we are really, really resilient people as a whole. There's a researcher named George Bonanno at Columbia, and he says the vast majority of people who suffer really terrible things like spinal cord injuries and cancer and um, unemployment, even the death of a child, they tend to get out of their, they don't have chronic depression or PTSD. They tend to return to their happiness set point. So we are very resilient people like like Bob Stifel. And uh, Bob Stifel, I think, had uh, an important fact for him was his religious faith. I wonder, yes. is that important in it, resilience It in is midlife? important. Um, you know, I, I mean, I talk to people of all, all ilks, and some people had a lot of faith and others didn't. When um, I talked to another woman who, kind of Maya Thompson, who lost a son, and in some ways she, she wasn't able to rely on her faith because it was such a devastating thing and she couldn't understand it. But what she did is she created a new sort of faith, and her faith, and not to denigrate, I mean, I'm a person of faith too, so I'm not denigrating this, this but I'm saying that even if you don't have a strong faith, she found her faith in helping other people. So what she did is she decided to raise money for clinical trials so that um, other little kids wouldn't suffer um, neuroblastoma and wouldn't die from neuroblastoma, that they would create a cure for it. And so her faith became finding, helping other people and, and using this tragedy in a way as a launching pad to to do good in the world and that gave her while it didn't bring her son back it gave her some measure of comfort 
that she was giving back. So if you have faith, it is something that you really should rely on because it gives you kind of an eternal perspective, which Bob had. His view was, you know what, if I go into surgery and I don't, and one of two things will happen, either I will meet my maker or I will see my wife, and both of them are terrific outcomes. So he had that kind of real confidence in faith and faith that is uh, just so enviable. It's wonderful. But even if you don't have that, there are ways to work through this and still retain um, a level of meaning and purpose. I just have two minutes left. I, I want to uh, end with this. It's near the beginning of the book. I wonder if I'd have you read this, uh, page 12. Page 12, okay. And uh, Where? it's, it's, it's kind there? of a snapshot of your mother. She sounds like a great person. Um, you're... you're uh, Visiting with your mother, you're also visiting with a, a, a student of yours. You're, you're, you're right. back at your alma mater teaching. Her name is Desiree, so I wonder if you could start with the paragraph that says, You know Desiree, I said. Okay. You know Desiree, I said. My parents divvied, divvied up the work, character-wise, when it came to my brother and me. Mom taught us integrity, and Dad taught us deferred gratification. I paused. Sometimes, I said, I wonder when it's time to stop deferring and start gratifying. Mom looked at me in wonder. It's now, honey, she said, raising her arms like a referee signaling a touchdown. This is the time to enjoy your life. Don't waste another moment. It's a really, really important thing to do. And what I began doing is is taking snapshots of moments like that and saying, you know what? This is a really good moment. This moment with Desiree and Mom, two generations, it's a good moment. This moment on the RV with my husband, it's a really good moment. This moment with my stepdaughter, it's a great moment. And I would take snapshots and focus on those, and I found I got happier. We'll uh, leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, A great read. Uh, Highly recommend it. Life Reimagined, the Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. Barbara Bradley Haggerty is the author. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. And uh, hope you join us uh, tomorrow for Access Utah. On Thursday, we have our Earth Day program, and we'll have uh, writer Stephen Trimble uh, with us. Uh, Great programs to come. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. This week, learn how artists got people moving west by idealizing both the journey and the destination. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The mapmaker for the Dominguez Escalante Expedition, Bernardo de Miero y Pacheco, created the first known map of Utah in 1776. Miero combined Utah Lake and the Great Salt Lake into one large body of water with a river outlet that led straight to the nearby Pacific Ocean. For the next hundred years, artists on survey expeditions to Utah would continue to combine observation and imagination in their depictions of the western landscape. The earliest surveyors were looking for natural resources to tap and easier routes for settlers. The 1849 Stansbury Expedition was the first scientific team to use artists to document the flora, fauna, and geography of the Great Salt Lake. Soon after, the 1853 Fremont Expedition brought along photographer Solomon Carvalho to document a route through the Wasatch Mountains. Brigham Young also commissioned depictions of Utah to encourage immigration. At Young's behest, English artist Frederick Piercy spent six months in Utah in 1853 
creating drawings that appear in a guide for Mormon converts traveling to Salt Lake. Despite the guide's purpose, Piercy himself returned to England and was excommunicated for refusing to immigrate. Many artists and photographers of the West exaggerated the wild landscape, emphasizing the vastness of the sky and the wonders of creation in order to fuel the imagination and, more importantly, the immigration of people from the East. Some artists romanticized the journey, making trails look lush, exciting, even easy. Albert Bierstadt, for example, came to Utah with the 1859 Lander Expedition. Bierstadt was known for his sweeping mountain vistas, which convey the emotions provoked by nature more than they depict geographic reality. Other artists, like Thomas Moran, who accompanied the 1873 Powell survey of the Colorado River, created paintings of Zion, Yellowstone, and the Grand Canyon that influenced Congress to protect these areas as wilderness. Artistic license? Perhaps. But these expeditions produced an unparalleled body of artwork, drawings, paintings, and photographs that contributed to the settlement of the West and to its enduring mystique. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Michelle Hill. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank.